My name is Evan White, and you're listening to the Stories on Stage Davis podcast. One of the pleasures of our series is when we have the occasion to present an emerging voice. While many of our writers have published books, every so often we encounter someone who is earlier on their journey to literary stardom. This week's episode features the short story Hawaiian Shirts by Mary Kearney Brown, who is a Bay Area native and a recent graduate of Haverford College. She joins the illustrious ranks of other emerging voices we have presented, and from whom we anticipate great things. Reading Hawaiian Shirts is actor Thomas Dean, who is making his welcome debut with our series. Stay tuned after the reading to hear Mary Kearney Brown on the inspiration behind her story. But first, here's Thomas Dean reading Hawaiian Shirts. Hawaiian Shirts by Mary Kearney Brown We had been walking to the Greek festival, me and Ryan, toward City Hall down by 8th and Broad. Ryan had said we had to stop at Val's Liquor on the way, and I said, No, we don't have time. And he said, We've got nothing but time. I said, Fine, but only if I could get sour candies. And he said, Well, man, you can have whatever you want. The clerk at Valve's was watching the Flyers game on his phone. Who's up? Ryan asked, easy and smooth. His forehead slick with white light and sweat. I said it in my head the way he did, pressed my lips together to shadow the soft pee. Who's up? I followed Ryan to the refrigerators in the back. You gotta stop letting Barb call you a dumpling, he told me, pausing in front of the fridge. I wanted to say, ha, that's rich. Auntie Barb with her knife-sharp tongue and her will like a boar. Like it was in my power to let her do anything. But instead I asked, how come? And he said, it doesn't look right. It was a lot of things Ryan said didn't look right. Wrestling with cousins in the yard. Watching I Love Lucy reruns. Ryan said I had to stop talking like Ma. No more saying, it's hotter than sin. Or calling things fabulous, just fabulous. I got better at biting my tongue now, when I felt that lilting sort of talk coming out. I was lucky Ryan let me come with him to the Greek festival. Ma had shooed me out the kitchen. She was making pot roast and mashed potatoes. You don't have anywhere better to be? she asked, clinking dishes in the sink. And I was too embarrassed to say I wanted to help. Ma had been on edge all day. She and Ryan had gotten into it earlier about the Irish flag hanging in our living room pinned over the TV. Ryan said that Irish pride was just an iteration of white supremacy, and Ma said, Oh, this is what they taught you at college? God, I'm so glad we spent all that money, took out all those loans, so you could talk like a dipshit. And Ryan said, Calm down. I'm going back next semester. It's probation, Mom. I wasn't expelled. Ryan had pulled a steel reserve 40 out of the fridge. You want something? He asked, gesturing to the rows of tall boys in Coors Light. Give me a Stella, I said. Bet, he said, reaching toward the amber bottles. But then he shook his head, laughed, let the fridge door fall closed. I was relieved. I only ever tasted alcohol one time, last year, at one of our cousin's birthday parties, when Uncle James gave me a sip of his Don Julio at the Red Solo Cup. Mixed with guava and lime, so sour it burned your pink under your tongue. I swallowed with my throat wide and kept a straight face, since the uncles were watching me. Smoke, the open grill. They'd cackled and cheered, 
lifted bottles up and a toast. Atta boy! And even with the diesel taste, and it felt good the way they laughed. Ryan put the can down on the clerk's counter and pulled out his wallet. I wasn't going to remind him about the candy, but he looked at me. You don't want anything? You know I do, my man, I said and reached down for a Mars bar. You know that I do. We walked back out onto Broad Street, just like that. Him drinking out of the paper bag, me peeling back the gold foil of my candy bar. The night was electric almost. Everyone on their porches, on the curb, too hot to be inside. A guy in a tank top stood out with a water hose, spraying the little patch of grass in front of his row house. Seemed crazy to me, when August in Philly was wet enough to soak the earth to its core. You know my friend Robbie? I asked with a mouthful of Mars bar. The kid with the gigantic head? Ryan asked. He has a normal-sized head, I told him. At Browning, kids made fun of Robbie because he had twisted front teeth and a patchy buzz cut. He was small and on scholarship and quick to take things the wrong way. So they'd rally around and talk shit with the prep school rhythm. No, jocular, white teeth smiling. But nobody ever said anything about him having a big head. Nah, Ryan said. If he's the kid I'm thinking of, he looks like a blow pop. Oh, I said. Are you thinking of my friend with the lisp? The one I went to Poconos with? Yeah, Ryan nodded. That's Max, I said. Robbie is the one with the teeth. Oh, Ryan said, nodding. I got you. Well, I said. Robbie told me that in ninth grade, the boarding students have parties in the classrooms at night. Sometimes they even do it in the classrooms. I had two weeks until the start of ninth grade. This was my third year at Browning, but ninth grade was different. Ninth grade was upper school. We had to play one sport per season. We were supposed to have Sperry's boat shoes and a girlfriend and a group of cackling, thick calf friends and a crisp navy blazer to wear to class on game days. All I had was Robbie and Max. I asked them both what electives they were taking so I could take those ones too. Nah, Ryan said. When I was at Browning, the real scene was the day student parties. The kids who lived on the main line, you know, with those ten-bedroom houses with tennis courts. They'd throw parties where shit went down. Weed for days and whole cabinets of booze. Their parents would make you sign a waiver to come, though. Oh, I said. Did people still, you know, do it? Ryan snorted. <laughs> oh, you're on the prowl, huh? I'm not on the prowl, I said. I just, you know, I... No, I feel ya, Ryan said, resting his forearm on my shoulder. It's a big step. I wish I could be like Ryan, who probably got invited to any party anybody ever threw. He'd been shy too, I think, but he always played it off better. Every word crisp, his shoulders pinned carefully and straight, high chest postured. He was never impressed or excited. It was the way of cool guys that you'd seen the whole world five times before. He didn't have the same way as the Browning kids. He didn't have the same way as the Browning kids, though. Those boys who folded straight into the campus landscape, green lawns and hydrangeas, red brick and the lamp-lit granolithic, sauntering down Main Street with their jerseys hung around their necks after practice, joking with teachers like they were friends. No. Ryan was mumbly with adults. I remembered him when he first started upper school, leaving the house quiet, his backpack tied on his shoulders, always eagle-eyed, watching out for what other kids did, 
studying how they used their forks and how they asked teachers questions before anyone said it was okay for them to speak. His friends never came to our house. Later, I learned, he'd lied to everybody that we lived on Main Street. We kept walking down to Center City, past those rows of lampposts that the cops greased with Crisco after the Eagles won the Super Bowl. The Crisco was so that no one would try to climb up them, you know, up the lampposts during the Fuhrer that night. But even so, guys still shimmied their way up to the top, with emerald jerseys glinting like jewels under streetlight, shouting, Big Nick Dick and Go Birds! The city ablaze. As we got further down the block, we came past an abandoned lot, full of overgrown Bermuda grass, a couple of shopping carts, soda lids and fast food wrappers strewn about, and dandelions, cottony and soft, like thousands of powdery stars. I bent down and picked as many as I could fight in my hand. These are dandelions, I said to Ryan. Each is good for one wish. Yeah, he said. I nodded. Some people say it only works if you get all the seeds off, but I think it counts even if you don't. What are you going to wish for? That the Eagles win the next Super Bowl, I said, blowing hard at one of the dandelions, almost no seeds coming loose, and that Robbie grows into a handsome man. Huh? Ryan said, strolling to the stoplight, pushing the pedestrian button, and leaning against the metal beam. I clenched my jaw, nervous, thinking this was the type of thing I should have known not to say. It had been a week before, when he'd said it to me. He'd let me come with him to his shift at Vetri Cucina. The owner said that I could help in the dishroom, pushing wheelie trays of dishes from the Hobart to the line. They paid me under the table, even throwing me a couple of bucks and tips. On break, Reiner and I had sat in the back by the dumpsters, sweat bead on his upper lip. I pulled at a strain of fat in my steak. Ryan said he'd seared it with a stick of butter just for me, clicking his tongue. You gotta bulk up. It was a blood rare, seeping red into the prosciutto cotto, into the bison tartar. I never asked for it any different on account of how the cook sneered at the phrase, well done. You like it? Ryan asked. He'd garnished my plate the way he did for guests, even with the silvery drizzle of truffle oil. As I nodded, Vic and Chef G came out from the back door of the kitchen. Vic was hollering about how someone had spilled limoncello on the prep kitchen and how there wasn't a chance in hell that he was going to help clean it up. They'd sat down on either side of me, carrying in a cloud of cologne, the feeling of the kitchen, the menthol breath shouts and inked forearms and seared, blistering meat. The gentle way they had sometimes, soft-voiced, Christ, you're making me nervous, when they tried to teach me to find ice with their knives. Adrian had blocked the lighter from the wind as he lit up, Exhaling sharp, he'd grinned. Hey, Vic, you see Jessica tonight? Ah, man, Vic had smiled, leaning back, both hands to his chest like he'd been pierced through the heart. You know I'd spend my whole check on that girl. I don't know what Vic wanted me to say when he turned to me and said, You seen Jessica, yeah? With a sharp kind of smile. I had. She had soft, bouncy hair and had called me so cute when Ryan introduced me. Gave me a handful of truffles from the hostess stand. I'd watched Vic try to holler at her when she bent over to pick up a receipt. God, I'm gonna start dropping things just for you to pick up, he'd said. She'd yelled at him. You never seen a woman before? Then shook her head like it didn't matter either way. Jessica is nice, I said. Vic snorted. <laughs> just nice? I nodded. Come on, Vic said. You got high standards, huh? I shook my head. 
No. I stammered out. I don't know. I said, I never had a girlfriend before. Vic cackled. Adrian looked at me. He's different, he said. Ryan had shaken his head. He plays it cool as all, then changed the subject to something else. Later, after we left, I said to Ryan, Adrian was intense. He's always chill with me. I was quiet. Look, Ryan said, it's something you gotta work on. Being more confident. You need to act like you've been somewhere before. My insides plunged. I felt my throat burn. I wanted to say, sorry, sorry for making him look bad and embarrassing him. Sorry for being how I was. But Ma always said, the only apology is to not do it again. It was the only thing that made me think I even stood a chance, was that Ryan and I were of one blood. Ever since he'd moved back home, at night, I'd watch him through the screen porch when he and his friends were sitting on the curb, shouting, laughing, reefer fog tapering up into the night. One of those first nights after Ryan moved back home, after he bombed his second semester at Drexel, he'd been out drinking and couldn't find his key when he got home. He punched a hole through the window, pulled his fist out and laughed, fuck, at the blood streaking his wrists. I ran out and brought him into the kitchen, pressed a wet paper towel on his hand to sop up the red. I figured it was what he meant by, you need to act like you've been somewhere before. To know how to drink, how to make a fist, that he belonged to a realm of men with good shoulders who knew reflexively the right way to be. The light turned green. You good if we make one stop? Ryan asked. For sure, I said. We walked down Chestnut Street with the deep green trees and red brick pen buildings. College kids stumbled out onto the street, laughing, shouting. We kept walking until we were at the frat row where Ryan used to live, almost to the Drexel campus. Huge three-story mansions with Greek letters stamped on the front. Guys playing beer pong on the front lawn while the girls in crop tops watched. We got to a house at the corner of the street. A big red brick place that looked like somewhere a Kennedy would live, with its white columns and awnings and round porch. There was a tree with Corona bottles hanging from each branch and an American flag draped across the front door. Through the windows, red lights flashed. Music beat. People shouted, laughed. Three guys were sitting on a bench in the front porch, all wearing Hawaiian shirts and Nike socks. Their legs were built solid. You good? Ryan asked me. I nodded. Cool. This is just going to take a minute. We walked toward the house where the guys were sitting. Hey, Mackie, Ryan said, strolling up to the steps, grinning wide at one of the guys. Mackie stood up from the bench, giving Ryan a salute. They did that high five into a hug thing. My man, Mackie said. It's been a minute. How have you been? I'm good. I'm good, Ryan said. He used the deep voice he used sometimes. Letters at the end of sentences dropped. A chuckle at the back of his throat. Hanging in there? We miss you, bro, Mackie said. Charlie's all alone in y'all's room. He can't sleep. Stays up all night, wild-eyed, calling out, Ryan, Ryan! <laughs> I doubt it, Ryan said, smiling. Hey, is Kip in there? He asked, gesturing at the house. He most definitely is, Mackie said. He's manning the drinks table. Saw him striking out with some girl. All right, dope, Ryan said. I've got something to give him, so we're going to head in. I'll see y'all in a minute. You know where we'll be. I followed Ryan into the house. The front room was packed, bodies so close together there was no space for air. T-shirts wet against backs, music pounding, 
red and white lights pulsing. Ryan moved through the crowd, smooth, pressing his palm against Guy's shoulders or on the small of girls' backs, saying, Hey, coming through? Easing past bodies like he'd sliced through butter. I stayed close behind, squeezing into the spaces he opened, wishing I could grab onto the back of his shirt. It was a chance to practice being cool, to not get scared by loud noises, to not worry about the strangers swaying or getting anxiety from looking people in the eyes. I couldn't be scared of alcohol or parties at upper school. We grazed past a girl wearing cutoffs, her tank top strapped loose on her shoulders. Hey, Ryan said to her, snaking an arm around her waist. Long time no see. She turned and squealed when she saw him. Ryan, oh my God, she said, giving him a hug. He smiled. Sophie, this is my brother Eli. Sophie reached out her arm and wrapped me in. The damp of her against me, the smell of magnolias like it came from her skin, a jolt all of it. We're just stopping by for a second, Ryan said. I wish we could catch up. No, she said. Stay. Sorry, Soph, Ryan said, gesturing to me. This man has important places to be. Ryan turned and started easing back through the crowd. We made it into the living room. A couple of guys stood behind a fold-out table, handing out Dixie cups of pink jello, ladling punch into red plastic cups. There were red coolers full of ice and natty light, bowls of Doritos and donut holes and gummy bears. Ryan shouted over the music. Kip, what's good? One of the guys looked up. He grinned. Finally, he said. Where have you been? Yo, we sprinted here. Fast as we could, Ryan said, reaching down to the cooler for a beer. All right, all right, Kip said. You got the half? I do, Ryan said. He reached into the pocket of his jeans and pulled out a Ziploc bag of weed. He handed it to Kip. Kip unsealed the bag and pulled out a chunk of it to sniff. I didn't know Ryan still had weed. He told Ma after he got put on probation that he wouldn't drink or smoke, that he'd be as straight edge as he could be. One of those first nights back, he'd sat in the kitchen, head down, talking to her so earnest, saying, I'm so sorry, saying, I can't believe after all you've sacrificed, I'd be this willing to act this callow. Ma had been so mad up till that point, but she sat down beside him then and said, I remember being 19 too. I can't hold it against you, holding his hand. Kip put the bud back into the bag. You always come through, he said. I try, Ryan said. I hoped now we could leave, to make it to the last hour or so of the Greek festival. But Kip turned to look at me. Who's this? he asked. This is my brother, Ryan said. He's going to ninth grade at Browning. Kip nodded. Yo! I caught a cousin at Browning. You know a guy named Jack on the lacrosse team? I shook my head. Well, Kip said, taking a swig of his beer, glancing around the room like he was looking for somebody else. You're probably better off for it. I giggled. Funny, that way Kip was. The way you were supposed to be. All quick wit and easy, making jokes at your own expense since you were so rock solid that everyone would know them not to be true. All I wanted was to be like Kip, weighted, broad-shouldered, firm in your body, with a voice that was never soft or inflected, never questioning itself, sutured together, impenetrable. What are those? Kip said, looking at me. I still had the dandelions bunched up in my palm, sweating, wilting stems. My throat was closed, 
But I was going to say, I don't know. I just pulled them up from the ground. I couldn't find a trash can. But it took me too long to say anything. Kiv looked at me, smiled a little bit. What's with the kid? He can't speak? And it wasn't mean, really. He was right. Could I not talk? Why wasn't I talking? It was so weird of me to stand there not responding, to never know what to say. The silver glint of his can pulsed under the beating lights. A girl came up to grab some Cheetos. Ryan looked at me, slow. He stood like the party was beating in his blood, like he was built to be among bodies. He had told me countless times in ways not always spoken about the importance of acting like you'd been somewhere before. And me, no matter how much prodding or sculpting or anything anyone tried, I was limp. He must have finally understood that I didn't stand a chance, that he couldn't take me anywhere or teach me anything. Ryan kept looking at me. He reached down and took one of the weeds out of my hand. He handed the withered stem to Kip. The dandelions, he said, amidst the pounding bass, the squealing girls, the same way he would have said sup or bro or what's good, all easy and smooth. Each is good for one wish. Kip took the dandelion. He rubbed the green part between his forefinger and thumb, slivering it up. The flesh of the stem mushed. All this time off is getting to you, huh? He said. Maybe, Kip. Maybe. Ryan paused. He nodded toward the bag. We good? Yeah, Kip said. He pulled out some cash from his pocket and handed it to Ryan. Ryan took it and didn't count the bills. Don't be a stranger, all right? Kip said. Ryan shook his head. Never, he said. Kip nodded at me. Godspeed, my man. Ryan and I stumbled back through the bodies and splashing cups, back out onto the street, into the sprawling dark of the night. We walked out of Frat Row, towards Center City, until the shouts faded back into the distance, the music dwindling soft. We never got to the Greek fair. It was enough, though, that later, when we were walking, Ryan took a dandelion from me and said, You want me to wish for Robbie, too? And I said, if you want. And Ryan said, God knows he needs it. And I said firm, Robbie is an angel. And Ryan said, okay. And nothing else. He blew the dandelion, inflating his cheeks, air coming out like he was trying with all his might. Maybe it was for my benefit. Probably it was. But in the years to come, when our bond splintered, when I had less to learn and he had less to teach, I'd think how much it meant that my brother, who was always puffing his chest and draping himself in a tender pride, would be willing to reach out for a dandelion with a wilted stem. And I'd think, too, how much it meant that moment of watching him be rendered soft, a feeling enveloped by an embrace as I was. This is Mary Kearney Brown, and you just heard my story, Hawaiian Shirts. Um, I wrote Hawaiian shirts while reflecting a lot on adolescence and the ways that it can feel like an imperative to figure out all of the rules of how to exist in the world in an acceptable way. In this story, I tried to write about someone who's coming of age and trying to glean everything he can from his brother, who's older and a little better at fitting in. A lot of things that his brother teach him throughout the story ultimately serve to reinforce rules about masculinity and convention, even though he's coming from a place of love. 
There's a Judith Butler interview from The New Yorker that I was thinking about a lot, in which she talks about the importance of counter-realism or refusing to concede to the limitations of our current reality. She says, quote, If we say that that's just the world is, even though we wish it were different, then we concede to the intractability of that version of existence. I think many of us hear different lessons from the people we love growing up cautioning us against behaviors or ways that may be penalized by our community. And though these precautions are maybe in an attempt to protect us from outside social forces, they ironically often serve to uphold and reaffirm those very sources themselves. I wanted to write about a small moment of courage and reconciliation in a context in which there's just sort of this haze of masculinist discourse and all of these constant postures that are being forced to adopt. While the younger brother idolizes his elder sibling, the final lesson, hopefully in this story, is ultimately his to teach. You've just heard Hawaiian Shirts by Mary Kearney Brown, read by Thomas Dean. The Stories on Stage Davis podcast will be back in two weeks with a new story by local author Barbara Link, whose book Choke Cherry Girl comes out this month. In April, Stories on Stage Davis will present a live virtual event with the Yolo County Library with special guest Raina Grande, the New York Times bestselling author of the memoir The Distance Between Us. You can find more info on our website about that event. The Stories on Stage Davis podcast is a sponsored project of Yolo Arts, a nonprofit arts organization, and supported in part by a grant from the City of Davis Arts and Cultural Affairs Program. Find upcoming episodes, view our archive of past episodes, and help support our series at storiesonstagedavis.com. Mm-hmm.